traditionally called Advent. It's a bit of a foreign word. It's from Latin, uh, which really uh, comes from the word meaning coming. And that is we're thinking about particularly the coming of Jesus. Uh, Traditionally, the idea of Advent every year around this time is to, I guess, to prepare our minds, uh, to prepare our minds and our hearts as the people of God to celebrate Jesus' coming at Christmas, um, but also uh, thinking about Jesus' coming again, uh, that he is uh, returning. And Christmas is hurling towards us, as Kenzie already mentioned, it's just 10 days away, which is almost so ridiculous that we're almost at the end of the year. So we thought it would be worthwhile just to spend this Sunday and next Sunday to, and dedicate these two Sundays to, to guess, I, guess, I guess, slow down a little bit, because Christmas can be kind of overwhelming. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to think about. Uh, but to slow down and, and think, what does it mean for the people of God to think carefully and to think thoughtfully about the fact that Jesus came? Uh, the fact that Jesus came as a gift from God to us. Uh, and the fact that Jesus is coming again. And so uh, we want to dedicate this week and next week. So why don't you pray with me? And then we'll look further into God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we want to just commit this time to you. We thank you that um, your word uh, speaks powerfully. And so give us sensitive hearts and sensitive minds to, to engage with that. Give us teachable uh, hearts and teachable, teachable minds to, to receive what you want to say to us. Uh, Father, we want to uh, commit the... The flyers that have gone out early this afternoon, we thank you for the hands that came along to, to do that. We pray that those flyers uh, might trigger some people just around us in the immediate radius to our church to come uh, to encounter uh, the good news, the fantastic news that y- you would send your son and your son would humble himself to the point of becoming a man uh, for us. We pray for our hearts as we think about uh, what it means that you would come and that you are coming again. I pray that we'd be, um, yeah, people changed by that. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we begin today, uh, got a question for us to think about. It's a bit of an existential question. It requires you to dig very, very deep. And so you ready? Here's the question. Why are movie sequels so terrible? Seriously, why, why are movie sequels so terrible? Whether it's a big budget or not, sequels seem to always be worse than the original. Right? For, for, for every Toy Story sequel, which did pretty well, you've got your Matrix sequels, you've got your Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, you've got Lion King sequels. I didn't even know Lion King had sequels because it didn't even make the cinemas, right? Um, now, I'm saying this to you, and maybe you've thought about it before. This is not just a vibe thing. Uh, people have actually done research on this. Check this out. This is a sequel map. Um, some guys who have got a lot of time on their hands collated all the scores from Rotten Tomatoes of every movie that's ever had a sequel. Now, you don't need to think too much and think too deeply about that, but basically you've got a little diamond shape there. For every sequel that did better in its ratings than its original, that'll be on top of the line in the middle. You see that? And so for every movie, therefore, whose original was better than the sequel, you've got at the bottom, and you see it's just weighted totally that the originals are better than the sequels. The size of the circles indicate the size of the budget of the film. Right? So this is not a vibe thing. This is scientifically proven that sequels just suck. And so I don't even know why people bother with it anymore. Now, why do I bring this up? Uh, as we begin our Advent series, remember, Advent, again, is Latin for the word coming. I wonder whether we sometimes think about Jesus' second coming like a terrible sequel, especially when we compare it to Jesus' first coming, which we celebrate at Christmas. 
Let me explain. If I were to poll our congregation, um, which of the two would you identify with more? Right? What would you appreciate more? Which one of the two would you gravitate towards? And I'm pretty certain that if we did a poll, the results coming back would profoundly and majority be about Christmas and not really the second coming. It's like the ignored sequel that nobody really cares too much about. And Kenzie mentioned why Christmas is something that um, we kind of appreciate more, right? We've got, we've got holidays around it, work shuts down because of it, we've got Maya Carey belting out stuff, Michael Buble belting out stuff, right? We've got services dedicated towards it. We have signs, advertising, lights, nativity displays, carols. They all point us to the realities of Christmas every year. We can't miss it. If you miss it, you're living under a rock. And so in the language of uh, movies and I guess sequels, Christmas, the first coming of Jesus, it's a real classic. And so it's little wonder that Jesus' first coming can take so much more of our attention than his second. And so today my hope for us is to just to pause and to see what God has to say to us and what God has to tell us about Jesus' second coming and see that that is actually worth waiting for. Now it's going to be a bit of a different sermon today because we're not going to be exclusively in 2 Peter chapter 3. We will come to it. So if you've got your Bibles, keep it open. We will come back to it. But And we're going to just in terms of our, a bit of a roadmap for today, you've got your three questions on your bulletin, so hopefully you've got that there. Uh, we're going to look at what are we waiting for, how has the church tried to wait, and how should we wait well. So let's jump right in. What are we waiting for? Question number one. So what are we waiting for? What exactly are we to expect, I guess, with Jesus' return? Now to do that, we're going to have to look through a bunch of uh, verses, I guess, in the New Testament that point us to what to expect. Now, I'm not exaggerating here. Every book in the New Testament talks about Jesus coming back. Every book. And so we're not going to go through every verse because that'll take us to next Sunday. Uh, but we're going to look through a small selection of them because I think from it, you'll get a glimpse, I think, of what God has planned and therefore what we're waiting for. So the first thing I want us to see from the scriptures about Jesus' second coming, it's there in your bulletins, is that Jesus' return will be visible and triumphant. Yeah, it will be visible and triumphant. Um, Jesus, speaking to his disciples um, in Matthew chapter 25, says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And he says again to his disciples, at that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Right? So, at that time, you put those two things together. At that time, what we're gonna, when Jesus returns, what are we going to see? There will be no doubt whatsoever who's king at that time. There will be no doubt whatsoever who is reigning at that time. Even though there are lots of questions now, who's king, who's God, who's reigning, who's not. At that time when Jesus returns, nobody is going to bat an eyelid and no one will have any doubt. See, just about in every way, when Jesus comes back, it's going to look almost in every way different to when Jesus first came. Right? Why? Well, let's just think about his first coming for a second. Yeah, In his first coming, Jesus came in really lowly circumstances, right? Humble circumstances. His first coming, his first advent involved a manger. He came as a baby. There was no room for him. His coming nearly ended the marriage of his mum and dad. Very few people saw him when he first came. Now, what about Jesus' second coming, the second advent? What will that be like? Well, that's not going to be lowly. That's not going to be humble. See, Jesus won't come as a fragile baby. He's going to come with great power. He won't be seen by just a few. In Revelation, we're going to see that every eye will see him. All peoples of the earth will see him. 
This is not going to be any manger. He's going to come with the angels, right? We see in Matthew 25, with him as king. I read an article recently that explained, you know, the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. We're going to sing it, right? It's a, it's a popular one. We all know it. Um, that's actually not a song, if you look at the lyrics, about Christmas. I don't know if you know that. Joy to the World has nothing to do with Christmas. Um, if you look at the lyrics very carefully, that carol is all about what we're talking about here. That Jesus' return is visible and triumphant. Let, let's just have a closer look at some of the lyrics from the verses, right? Verse 1, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Right? What's that verse talking about? That verse is talking about when all of heaven and all of nature will receive Jesus as king. It's on that day. That every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will repeat, to use the lyrics, repeat the sounding joy for all eternity. That's not talking about Jesus' first coming. That's talking about his second. What about verse 2? No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Verse 2 is all about when there will be no more sin and no more sorrow. When does that happen? It's not when Jesus first came. We know that. It's not now. It's when Jesus will come back. Right? It will be on that day when Jesus returns, there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And verse 3, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. Right? That is capturing what we see in Revelation 7, if you read it. Right? When Jesus returns, every nation, tribe, language, tongue, they will declare the glories of God. Right? This carol has nothing to do with Christmas, and yet we sing it at Christmas. Why? Because when we think about Jesus' first coming as a believer, as a Jesus follower, we can't separate it from when he comes back. As we think about his first coming, we look to his second coming. And so when you sing this carol in a couple of weeks, when you hear it in the shopping center, in Woolies or whatever, just let that remind you. Jesus is returning, visible and triumphant. But it's not just that, right? He's going to return visible and triumphant, but it will be certain yet unexpected. Now that might sound like a paradox, uh, it's not, and we're going to look at why the Bible points us this way, but Jesus promises he will return, talking about the certainty part. Right? In all four of the biographies of Jesus, he will say directly to his followers that he is coming back. <clears throat> John 14, 3, he says to his disciples, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I'll take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. In Acts chapter 1, uh, uh, he's, he's, Jesus just physically ascended into the heavens and the disciples who've gone up there, they've just seen him go up and they're like, now what? What do we do? And the angels come down and the angels tell these same disciples, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. Right? And so in the New Testament, Jesus' second coming is mentioned nearly 300 times, about one in every 13 verses if you do the math. And so the point of that volume of verses is to go... Guys, if you follow Jesus, this is, this is guaranteed. You take this to the bank. He's coming back. And yet, this event will be unexpected. right? You see, although God the Father has set a time for when Jesus will return, that time hasn't been revealed to anyone. Not even to Jesus. It's going to come unexpectedly, time-wise, for everyone. Right? Jesus says that in Mark 13. About that day or hour... Nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, speaking of himself, but only the Father. He says again in Acts chapter 1, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Yeah? 
Um, the metaphor most famously used to describe how unexpected it will be is at the bottom of the screen, right? It was re- read by Van for us. Uh, it's this idea of Jesus coming like a thief. Not because he's coming to steal stuff, obviously, but because it'll be unexpected. Um, before I was born, uh, my family lived in a little apartment on the first floor. Some of you may have heard this story before. Uh, my mum and dad had just the one car, and on a typical work day, they would take the car to either the train station or directly to work. And on this one particular day, our place was nearly robbed. Nearly is the key word, right? So whoever this robber was, they clearly had done their research. They had done their homework. They had kept their eye on our little apartment. I wasn't born, but our a little apartment for a little while. Uh, they knew how things worked. So if the car was no longer in the garage, if they saw the car go out, no one was home. And it would be free and empty uh, for the taking. And so... Uh, This was how the story was told to me. Uh, On a particular day, shortly after my parents left for work with the car, uh, this man tried to enter the apartment. Uh, The man didn't go through the front door. He climbed onto our balcony from the ground floor. So I guess it wasn't too high. He scaled it. So he scaled onto the balcony, over the balcony, and he finds that there's someone home. (laughs) My aunt's there. She's sitting in the, She's from Hong Kong. She's just visiting for three weeks. Just so happens that's the day that the robber chooses to try to rob the place. She's just there. She's sitting on the couch. And he scales the balcony and he goes, oh, someone's home. And my aunt is just looking at it. There's eye contact happening, right? And, and so there's um, no doubt the robber's stunned. No doubt my aunt is terrified. Um, and so what does my aunt do? The most nonsensical thing that you would do in that situation. She opened the balcony door. <laughs> She opens the balcony door, and then, even more crazy, I don't know what she was thinking about, she then went to our front door of the unit and opened that door. So she basically put the entry and exit strategy laid out for him. right? Even more nuts, though, and this makes no sense, what does the robber do? Well, he walks into the unit and then straight out. I think he's just in so much shock that this is happening right now. He just leaves without taking a thing. Now, we don't condone stealing at this church. I hope that is clear. But I don't know about you, if you were to give this thief a score out of 10 about how well he did that day, he'd fail pretty miserably. Right? I mean, not only was there someone home, uh, he was seen, and he didn't take anything. Pretty lousy, pretty lousy work. Friends, the point that Peter is trying to say here is that Jesus' return is going to be absolutely unexpected. Unlike that thief who tried to rob my parents' place, Although we shouldn't be shocked when Jesus comes, because it's certain, the timing of his turn will be unexpected. Yeah? So it will be visible, it will be triumphant, it will be certain yet unexpected. And thirdly, it will be personal and physical. Um, there are people that think in some way that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like really purely spiritual, or maybe symbolic. Um, some people reckon that Jesus has already returned without a body. And they just kind of know that he's come back because deep down they just feel it. Right, um, And so this life for them is really as good as it gets, which is really sad, right? But that's what they think, that Jesus has come back purely spiritually. Now, that's, that as an idea is very interesting and all, but to believe that, you've got to do some real gymnastics with some verses like the one on the screen uh, to believe something like that, right? Um, when Jesus ascends... Again, the angels, the same verse, they're saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. Will come back in the same way. See, what was Jesus like in the moment before he ascended? He was physical, right? He was bodily. He just 
eaten with them. He spent 40 days with them. He would let them touch his scars and his hands and his feet. You know, there, were, there are some differences with Jesus' new body, no doubt. But it's still very much physical. It wasn't some untouchable ghost or spirit. And if Jesus left the disciples in that same way, the angels were saying he is coming back that same way. That means it must be physical. It must be personal. It's not symbolic. It's not purely spiritual. He's going to come back as a person. That's why it's personal. He will appear as a man like he did when he first came. So in summary, what are we waiting for? We are waiting for Jesus to certainly return while unexpected in time. He will return in triumph and visible for all to see in a physical, personal, bodily way. Yeah? Now, Jody and I enjoy our TV shows like everybody else. And for particular shows that don't come out all at once in like binge mode where a full season comes out, they often, at the end of these episodes, they've got previews. Yeah? They've got previews of the next episode that's going to come next week. These little 30-second bits that, that, that kind of show certain shots of of the, of the next week's episode to, to get you anticipating so you come back and you just want it to release already. Yeah? Um, now, I don't know if you know this, but there are entire YouTube channels and entire podcasts dedicated to analyze every frame of these 30-second tidbits to find out as many clues, Easter eggs they call them, of the episode to come. Right? And so uh, they, go, they do a deep dive into uh, trying to figure out you know, um, inside knowledge of what to expect next week. Um, these previews, right? they're all about anticipation, and these Easter egg videos and, and podcasts are all building on this anticipation for this next episode. Friends, what God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture about Jesus' second coming is like a tidbit, a preview of what is to come. As you read it, as you hear about it, as you begin to imagine what this future reality is going to look like, I wonder what your response to this preview is. How are you waiting for it? I remember one of my Bible college professors speaking about this exact topic, right? Jesus' return, he's coming back. And he was talking about when he was walking in to hand his freshly printed PhD dissertation. He just spent five years on it. And he was, as he was, as he, uh, printed it from the printer and he was going to hand it in and he was praying desperately in that 10 minute walk that Jesus would not return at that moment. <laughs> right? This guy had just spent five years of his life dedicated to something. He wanted people to read it. So he was like, don't come back, Jesus. So what I'm trying to say, there's, there's no guilt trip here. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt trip you going, how are you waiting? How are you responding? But as we celebrate Jesus' first coming in a matter of days, given we've got this preview, we've just seen some snapshots of what it's going to be like. How are we waiting for it? Now, before we get to us, I think it'd be worthwhile to think about in our second point, how has the church tried to wait in history? So I'm not talking about Southwest as a church. How has the church, believers, in the last 2,000 years, how have they tried to wait? Um, broadly, there are four ways the church have waited and waited badly, right? Badly. Um, that's why I've got them all as letters F uh, on there, uh, just by coincidence. But they, I found four words that capture how the church throughout history have waited really, really badly. Um, the first way that the church, believers throughout history, have waited really badly is um, they've fled. They've fleed. Right? Knowing that Jesus is coming back has led certain movements, certain parts of the global church, the historical church, not to stay in the world, entrenched in the world, but to run, to withdraw, to hide, to isolate and hibernate from themselves. Right? That's what the monks do. Right? Civilization is there. We're going to go over here. 
That's what the Amish people kind of do, right? In some weird way. They're going to create their own secluded community from everybody else. It's in part motivated by the fact that Jesus is returning, so we're going to do everything possibly in our control to stay away from everything that's going on in the world. That's a way to wait badly for Jesus' return. Yeah, that's a way to wait badly. Uh, the other way, another way that people, the church has tried to wait badly is by fighting. Right, by fighting. Uh, there have been parts of history where believers, Christians, in the name of God, will have engaged in literal war, battle, to advance God's kingdom literally by building an army. Um, the Crusades, if you know it, are an example of that, right? Twisting men and women to believe that they could cleanse the world with Jesus' heavenly armies by might and by force. Right? That's an unbiblical, terrible way to wait. Another one is folly. Right? The third way to wait badly is folly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century, once said this, that the great doctrine of the second advent, the second coming, has in a sense fallen into disrepute because of this tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the who and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. Right? What's he trying to say is that there have been people that have been so preoccupied just to figure out when is he... If Jesus is coming back, I want to work out when and where he's going to come back. Is he coming to Sydney? Is he coming to Japan? Is he coming to America? Right? Is he going to Israel? Is he coming in the 22nd century? Is he coming in the 18th century? So preoccupied with just trying to work it out. I had a neighbor growing up on the opposite side of the street who dedicated, she had a job, but I think as her hobby, she dedicated her life to working out when Jesus would come back. She had a typewriter, um, and she produced this massive tome, this volume, uh, that was bound together with these handwritten notes that, that tied together events in world history to, to, to try to figure out when Jesus would come back. And she, she was like, I'm absolutely confident, Dom, that this is when Jesus comes back. It was so thick. It was bigger than, I don't know, we've got, we've got little Bibles outside. I think it's at least five times thicker than those Bibles on the desk. That's how thick it was. And she wanted me to read it. I'm like, no chance. I'm not reading that. Right? But she told me with absolute certainty that Jesus would return before I finished my HSC. I had my 10-year reunion last year, right? Now, obviously, we're curious. Obviously, we want to know when Jesus comes back. We get it. Like, if you're coming back, I want to know. But to dedicate all this time, all this energy to what we're told is actually just known by God, the Father himself, to somehow deceive ourselves into thinking that we can know when the Father, what the Father only knows, that's folly. That's foolish, It'd be like those people who create those podcasts and those Easter egg videos to spend every waking moment of every week of their lives to determine the script of the next episode. Right? This exact script. Or to extend the example of the thief metaphor, be trying to like figure out for the rest of your life when you might be robbed. To do that is stupid. You don't do that. And yet Christians throughout history have done that about Jesus' return. And fourthly, and we're going to slow down right uh, here, is Christians throughout history have also forgotten that Jesus will return. They've forgotten. And I hope you kept 2 Peter 3 open, because we're going to turn to it now. 2 Peter chapter 3. See, what's going on in 2 Peter? What's going on when Peter writes this letter? See, um, he's really concerned. Um, He's really concerned about uh, the way that certain believers are now at risk of forgetting that Jesus will return. There are people from within the church uh, that had already actually forgotten 
In verse 5, we see that Peter describes them not as accidentally, incidentally forgetting, but deliberately forgetting. There are folk who were once among them. They're now convinced that Jesus is not coming. And now they're trying to persuade everybody else of that same thing, that Jesus is not coming. We see their claim in verse 4. Have a look, verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. They will say, Peter writes, where is this coming, he's promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. What are they saying? They're saying that Jesus has not done anything. Nothing's changed. It's been decades. He said he'd return. He's not here. So why on earth should we expect anything different going into the future? And Peter's appropriately concerned, so much so that he dedicates this chapter to it, right? And so what does he do? He, he reminds them, verse 1, to recall, verse 2, the words spoken in the past, so that, verse 8, they don't forget. So what sort of things does he write to help remind them? Well, he goes into the past, right back to Genesis, to remind these believers what the future of these scoffers, he calls them scoffers, um, will be. He goes to the past to remind them. Uh, verses 5 to 7, again. Uh, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Right? So, so what's Peter saying? What's he trying to say here? Right? He's, he's saying, you're all believers. You believe God created the world. And it seemed like nothing terrible was going to happen. But then what happened in Noah's day? You know the story. The very waters God made were then used to destroy and judge the ungodly. That's, gonna, that's what's going to happen again when Jesus returns. These scoffers might think that nothing has happened. That nothing will happen. But just like the flood was God's divine judgment on the ungodly and the scoffers, Jesus will return and he will return to judge. And so he's saying to them, don't forget. Don't lose sight of this. The fate of these scoffers and their forgetfulness is pretty much repeating the same mistake as those who mocked Noah when he was building that ark. They will be judged. So he gives this really negative kind of stick reason. To not forget, but then he gives a positive reason to not forget the carrot. Verses 8 to 9, he says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, Peter writes. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter, in verses 8 to 9, is saying, don't forget, because there's a really good reason why he hasn't come back yet. It's not because Jesus can't or is unable somehow to keep his promise. It's because he won't come back yet. He's being patient. He's extending mercy. See, friends, we know this. The quality of a promise doesn't come from the content of the promise, right? It comes from the giver of the promise. We know this, that the quality of a promise comes from the giver. Boris Johnson, while he was still mayor years ago, he, he, said, he said this, it is easy to make promises, it is hard work to keep them. As he reflects on his prime ministership, I think he's find that quite true. Right? But this isn't Boris Johnson making a promise, this is God making a promise. And that's his promise to you and to me. Jesus is returning and what we might interpret as slowness or promise-breaking is actually God remaining faithful to His promise. 
You see, church, every day that Jesus hasn't returned is evidence of God's patience and extending mercy. Every day Jesus has not returned means that he is not done rescuing people. You imagine if Jesus came back last year. That means Jeffrey, who we met this year, would not be saved. That's it. But Jesus has not come back. Jeffrey now knows him. He was able to stand up and declare to everybody last week that he's now a Jesus follower. Because God is extending mercy. And so Peter says, don't forget, there is still time. And so maybe you're here today and you are, you are checking out Christianity. Maybe it's new, maybe you've been doing it for ages and ages and ages. In the midst of everything that we're talking about right now, I hope, I hope you see a little bit of the patience and mercy of God extended to you. He's going to return, it's inevitable. God's not going to leave the job unfinished. God already sent His Son into the world. Jesus already went willingly to the cross. He already defeated death. He already defeated sin at the cross when He rose. And He's going to come back and He's going to make all things new. He's not going to leave the job half done. He will finish it. And so, can I encourage you? Keep coming, right? Keep coming. Keep investigating. Can't think of a better time than Christmas to keep asking your questions. Keep exploring who Jesus is. Now, if you follow Jesus, though, if you are a Christian, it's unlikely that we're going to respond with the first three Fs to Jesus returning. Right? We're not going to... We're unlikely, right? Unlikely we're going to flee. Unlikely we're going to take up a gun and start massacring people. Hope not. It's unlikely you're going to start typewriting a massive book about when Jesus will return. But if you're anything like me, while we might not be willingly or deliberately forgetting, like the people in 2 Peter 3, there's another kind of forgetting that we're more likely to do. Right? Friends, the fact that Peter wrote this chapter just decades after Jesus rose and ascended, just decades means that he was fearful that even faithful Jesus followers could absorb ideas from the world around them, from the culture around them, even unintentionally, and that would steer them away from the truth. Just in a matter of decades. And if that's true for believers so close to the resurrection, that's even more true for us that are millennia removed. Right? We can forget the times that we're in, right? We're in the last days. That's what Peter says in verse 3. We are in the last days. We are in an era in God's epic plan for the universe where the only big event left is actually for Jesus to come back. That's it. That's the last thing. And in our forgetfulness of our times that we're in the last days, what we do is we turn to things that God has designed to bring enjoyment in its, in its temporariness, if that's a word, and we make them more permanent and more prominent than God designed it to be. Right, what do I mean? Well, let me give you a personal example. This, this year has been a fantastic year in terms of being full-time here at, on staff. It's, it's been actually a wonderful thing right? to be part of the staff team, to try different things, to be encouraged, to see bits of fruit here and there, to pour myself into serving full-time for the very first time. But in the last month or so, I, I've received feedback from people that I respect, that I've been invited to speak into my life about the way that I've been pouring myself into my work and the way that that's been impacting, I think, important aspects of my life around me. The way that, the way that I've poured myself into my work has impacted and bled into uh, uh, my marriage with Jody. The way that it's impacted and bled into uh, my personal devotional life with God. We trick ourselves as people who are in ministry to believe that we somehow are close to God just because we do God's work. They're two very different things. 
It's impacted my health. It's impacted my sleep. I've just let it bleed into things. I'm answering emails at 10 p.m. when I can leave it till tomorrow. And people are warning me, Tom, what are you doing? See, as good as it's been this year, there have been too many moments and more than I'd probably like to admit that I've made this ministry work, as great as it is, more permanent and more prominent than it ought to be. And if I were to continue down that track, the only place it will lead to is hurt and disappointment. Friends, this is my work, you've got your work. Careers, including vocational ministry work, are good, but they're temporary. I haven't talked about it at the start. It's momentary, this stuff. Marriages are good. They're temporary, though. Family is good. It's temporary. Friendships are good. It's temporary. Holidays, experiences, travels, hobbies, they're good. They're temporary, though. And in our forgetfulness of where we stand and where we sit in God's, the era that we're in, in God's epic plan, in our forgetfulness of that, we can make these good and temporary things, though, permanent and prominent. Now, the answer to that isn't to, you know, suddenly abandon all these temporary things, obviously, right? It's not like there's only two options. If it's, if it's permanent, uh, if, if, if it's meant to last, keep it. If it's temporary, just ditch it. That's not it. Good things are good, to state the obvious, and God gives them to us as gifts. So enjoy them, dedicate time to it, treat them as God's gifts to you because they are, but be measured. Be thoughtful. Remember that these things are actually best enjoyed in these last days when they are what they're meant to be, and that is temporary. Because when Jesus comes back, those things are only going to get even better. And so we shouldn't flee, we shouldn't fight, we shouldn't be foolish, neither should we forget. So how should we wait? Right? How should we wait? Um, if God has given us this preview of, it, of what Jesus' second advent, his coming was going to look like, how should we wait? What will our response be? Well, the passages in the New Testament say a lot about this. We won't go through it for the sake of time, but let me summarize it with this phrase. We should wait imminently. Yeah? You've heard me use this phrase before. We should wait imminently. Um, to wait imminently means to wait as if Jesus' second coming is, is near. That's what it means, to wait for it as if it's near. Um, now, what does that mean? Um, the first thing to say is that imminently doesn't equal immediately. Right? So we're not thinking about Jesus coming right after this service ends, possibly. Right? We shouldn't be thinking in that way anyway. Um, reason why we shouldn't be thinking about this way, you, you just think logically for a second. If, if we spend all our lives thinking that Jesus could come back in 30 seconds, how does that impact the rest of your life? You won't do anything. And because you won't do anything, and because Jesus still hasn't come back, you get impatient, right? If Jesus is coming back in 30 seconds, you're not going to work tomorrow. You're not going to get your kids dressed if you have kids. You're not going to do the groceries tonight to prepare for the week. You're not meal planning and prepping. Right? You're cancelling all your plans in your calendar. But that's not right, is it? Because God calls us to live productive lives for Him. And so living as if Jesus is coming immediately is not waiting imminently. But neither is waiting imminently, waiting as if Jesus is never going to return in your life. Yeah, We shouldn't be thinking in that way, because if we did, the danger of that, the temptation of that, is we start to move into the territory that the believers in 2 Peter are doing. They're moving into forgetfulness. Now, if you live your whole life going, Jesus isn't coming back, why bother? 
I'm going to live my life as if he's not. Well, you're just going to end up forgetting over time. Eh? And so waiting imminently is kind of in between those two things. It's, it's not like waiting in a, in a doctor's waiting room where your whole life is on hold to see the doctor. It's more like waiting as if um, summer is near. Right? It's waiting for a season or something. Because you don't put your life on hold knowing that summer is coming, but yet you can do stuff to prepare for it. Right? So it's kind of like that. Wait imminently. We still have things to do. We still have lives to live. But we can wait knowing that His coming is near. Now, I've titled this third point, How Should We Wait? And I put we not just because there's a group here. I put we because it's actually very significant when we think about how we wait imminently uh, now. Right? Waiting imminently is actually not an individual thing. It's a collective thing. It's a we thing. It's a meaningful we why? Well, it's actually biblical. That's the, that's the way that God wants us to wait now. He wants us to wait together. Um, the writer of the Hebrews, um, the book to the Hebrews, uh, he's, he's uh, just reflected on these great promises that God's given. And we've just done a little bit of that today. Yeah? We've reflected a little bit of God's promises. He then turns to his audience and he writes this. Um, so that first verse there, He's talking about the promises. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And then he turns to the audience, his audience, and he says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Right? As we reflect on the promise of God, as we're waiting imminently for Jesus to return, trusting in God's promise to us that He will, or to use the language of this verse, as the day is approaching, the community and friendships around us play a really critical role in helping us wait. Right? A huge, huge role. See, we can't do this waiting thing on our own. We need each other to wait well. But the funny thing is, right, the funny thing about friendships is if you want nothing but friends, if that's your only goal, you want friends, if you want nothing but community, that's your only goal, community, you're not going to have friends or community. It's just the way it works, weirdly enough. Um, C.S. Lewis made this observation in, in his book, uh, The Four Loves. I've got, got a quote here. Uh, he writes, the, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. When the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I don't care about that truth. I just want you to be my friend. No friendship can arise from that. You see what he's saying? It's a paradox, but friendship, he's arguing, cannot be about itself. Friendship must always be about something else. There has to be a strand that ties friendship and community together. Whether it's movies, books, TV, shows, games, sport, nature, theater, music, arts, hobbies, pets, whatever. right? Something that both friends are committed to, that's the strand that brings the friendship together. And if all you care about and obsess about are the friendships, then well, it's never going to work. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. For the Jesus follower, for the Christian, friendship with one another has an incredibly deep strand that ties them together. That we are one in Christ. We are supernaturally loved by God. 
But we, to borrow the words of Pastor Tim Keller, also have a horizon that we share. That is so high, that is so far, and that is when Jesus returns and we will finally see him face to face together. See, we have a greater depth and a greater bond that bring us together than any friendship in the world. I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. We have a deeper bond and a deeper depth than any friendship in all the world because we follow Jesus. We have a greater and higher horizon than any friendship in the world as well. That is, those are true statements. See, when our Christian friendships and relationships are about what any friendship is about, as wonderful as that is, we're not beginning to even touch what the possibility and the trajectory of that friendship could be. If, if the only thing that bonds me to Kenzie is a love for the Nintendo Switch, right, as great as the Nintendo Switch is and all that comes with it, right, if that's all that binds us together, it's lacking. See, Jesus is returning. There's no greater horizon. And so, church, some questions for you to consider as we wrap up. Um, can, you, can you actually name the people that God has placed in your life to help you wait well and for you to help them wait well? Can you name them? Do you have people that you would name? And if you can, are those friendships and relationships actually helping you to wait well? Or are they hurting your ability to wait well? And are you doing the same for them? Are you helping or are you hurting them? Now, if you're married, if you're married, while you still need friends, is your spouse helping you to wait well? Are you doing the same for them? Because, friends, we need each other to wait well. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming in a matter of days, will that stir us to wait well together for his second coming? Because this is a sequel certainly worth waiting for. Let's sing.